Hey there, and thanks for listening to our podcast. Our mission at Hope is to invite everyone to find Jesus and help them move toward the center of God's purpose for their life. Here's this weekend's message. Hi. How's everyone doing today? All right. That's some good energy this morning. I like it. We lost an hour of sleep last night, but who cares? My name is Zach Wright. If we haven't met before, I am the Frisco West campus pastor, and it's so great to be here with you guys at East today, hanging out with y'all this morning. To everybody watching online from our online campus, welcome to our Prosper and McKinney campus as well. Welcome to you guys. And then a special hello to my friends, my pe- you guys are becoming my people now, Frisco West, I love you guys. Well, it's great to be here this morning. I want to kick off today by reminding us of something we committed to do at the beginning of this year. So John started a series on revival in January, and one of the things we committed to do in that series was to pray pray for revival in our own hearts, but also to take each month and pray for specific states and leaders in our nation. So for the month of March, which is weird to say, does anybody else feel like, how did we get to March already? But here we are. So for the month of March, these are the states that we're going to be praying for. There they are, coming right up. All right. So first, we have the state of Florida. I know many of you guys love to visit in the summer, so you want to pray extra special prayers for the state of Florida. Uh, Georgia, Hawaii, and then finally, Idaho. So I actually have a friend who lives in Idaho, and I've visited before, and it's like a sneaky, beautiful place. Kind of reminds you of Colorado. And that was brought to you by the Idaho Board of Tourism. So there you go. You can (laughs) take that for what it's worth. Uh, We also committed to pray for our president, our vice president, and Congress each month. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us right now. But before I do, I just want to ask you guys to commit with us to be praying each and every month of this year. And remember, the whole point of that series was that we start with ourselves first and foremost. So would you join me in prayer right now? God, we start by just asking that you would bring about revival in our own hearts. Before we even look outward or pray for our our leaders in our nation, we just ask that your spirit would move and stir among the hearts of your people. To ask ourselves, what would it look like for revival to break out in my own life, in my family, in my friends? God, we pray specifically for the state of Florida. We pray for the state of Georgia. We pray for the state of Hawaii, the state of Idaho, and all of their leaders God, we pray for our president, Joe Biden. We pray for our vice president, Kamala Harris. We pray for every single member of Congress. We know that your spirit is alive and working all throughout our country. And we just ask that you stir in the hearts of your people to bring about revival first and foremost in our hearts and that that would grow and spread to people that are moving and working in your kingdom. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing in a series today leading us all the way up to Easter. And I love that we're taking this approach because as we get closer to Easter, where we experience the story of Jesus's death and resurrection, we're looking at the events in Jesus's life leading up to that point. And we're taking the approach of experiencing his story through different characters in the Bible. And so here's where we've been so far. In week one, we started with Jesus. You got to start there. It's the right answer, you know. Spoiler alert, we're ending with Jesus too. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Week two, we talked about Jesus' disciples. Week three, Mike Foster was here. He's a friend of Hope Fellowship. Did an amazing job talking about the sick. Week four, we talked about Nicodemus. Last week, John talked about 
the women in the story and how Jesus elevated their role in that time. And then today we're talking about the religious. And this is kind of like a dun-dun-dun moment. These are the villains of the story. So as we read the story of Jesus, these are his nemesis. These are the ones who are set up in opposition to him. As a matter of fact, as we get closer to the Easter story, they were the ones that were really pushing for him to be killed and crucified. They were leading the charge against him. And so I think it's helpful for us to to specify a few terms when we talk about the religious, because this is kind of an umbrella term, the religious leaders. But in scripture, we find several different terms used to describe who they were. So the first one we hear, this is maybe the most popular one, is Pharisees. Maybe you've heard this before. We hear Sadducees in scripture. We see also scribes. We see lawyers, and then we see teachers of the law. Now, probably the one you've heard the most is Pharisees. And if you're new to church and you're new to like church lingo and how it all works, if you ever hear someone call someone else a Pharisee, watch out. There's a fight that's about to break out, most likely. It is an insult. They're portrayed so poorly in scripture that the word Pharisee is used as an insult in churches today. What it's referring to is someone who's so legalistic and hypocritical that they can't even see it. And so when we hear terms like that, our first instinct is often to look outward. We don't like to look inward first. We hear religious leaders, hypocritical Pharisees, and we wanna go ahead and start talking about that church over there. Can you believe them? what they do, or that person over there, they're such a hypocrite. We automatically go to like they or them. And have you ever noticed that we used this term here, they, is kind of like a vague way of assigning responsibility to someone else, even though it's not really someone specific? Here's an example of that. Maybe lately you've heard, can you believe they raised the price of eggs? Come on. $5 for a dozen eggs? Are you kidding me? But when we say that, they raised the price of eggs, who are we talking about? The chickens? They finally unionized to get paid for what they're worth, you know? Who raised the price of eggs? They did, whoever that is. If you work in the corporate world, maybe something you might say is, they are making us work longer hours. But who is they? Is it the chickens again? Are they they doing it? No, we're probably referring to like a vague upper management of some kind. They are doing this to us. Now, I'll admit there are times where this is convenient for me to use this. For example, if my wife asked me to pick up something on the way home and I get home and I can say they were out. Translation, I forgot to get it. (laughs) But they are out. Can you believe that? When we hear stories about Pharisees or the religious, it's our natural instinct to start thinking outwardly of other people. And today, as we talk about them and their place in this story, I want to challenge us to look inward instead with humility, to maybe take a look at our own lives and see if there are any similarities between their stories and ours. And this is not an easy thing to do. There's a helpful concept that we talk about in our regeneration and our re-engaged ministries. John talked about this in our revival series as well, and I think it applies so much today. Draw a circle around yourself and take ownership of everyone in the circle. Here's what we do. We draw a circle around ourselves. Don't bring anyone else into the circle. It's just you. And then take ownership of everyone in the circle. 
It's difficult. I recognize this is a hard thing for us to do. I think part of the reason why it's so difficult is that when we read books or we watch movies, we are naturally conditioned to identify with the heroes of the story. Every time you watch a movie, you're looking at the main character, the hero, you're putting yourself in their shoes and saying, how can I be like them? Or how can I find myself in that character? Nobody watched Star Wars and thought, you know, the dark side was making some really good points. Or like Darth Vader, he's just so misunderstood, you know? We don't naturally identify with the villains in a story. And I think when we approach scripture, that can be a dangerous thing for us to just naturally identify with the hero. There's some pretty famous examples of how this can be a pretty detrimental thing. So for example, back during the time of the Civil War in our country, preachers in the South, they would preach on the story of Moses and Pharaoh. And the way they would preach the story is that the South was Moses and the people of Israel and that the North was Pharaoh and their oppressors. The South actively owned slaves and they found themselves in Moses and the Israelites' characters in the story. It takes a very warped sense of reality to identify with that character. But it, it happens to all of us naturally. We see ourselves in the heroes of a story and it drastically changes the way that God can speak to us from that story. So I think this approach, that the way that we read scripture matters so much because of this. We are not the hero of God's story. I know this is shocking. Maybe it's hard to hear, but we are not the hero of God's story. Some might even argue that we're the villain of the story. We're the ones who messed it all up. But when we read scripture, we naturally identify sometimes with the hero, and it prevents God from speaking to us in powerful ways. And so I think this is a helpful approach when reading the Bible in general, any story that we're reading. But today, I really want to emphasize it as we look at the religious leaders and specifically in a minute, a story that they were involved in. So I think it helps first to just give some context and some background to the religious leaders. Who were they? How did they come to be who they were by the time of Jesus? So I have this timeline that I think is helpful for us just to see their place in the story. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament, after the time where God had established Israel with kings and as their own nation, the people of Israel began to turn away from God. And as a result, God allowed their enemies to come in and to conquer them and to split their kingdom in two and to take them off into exile and captivity. So they were taken away from their home. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, we see they're starting to return back to Jerusalem and re rebuild a little bit, but it's not the same that it was before. So we have exile and captivity. Then there's a 400-year gap. This is what we find between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have a lot written about that in Scripture. And then that leads us to the birth of Jesus. So the religious leaders, they came about here as the people were being taken into exile and captivity. Religious leaders were appointed to preserve their way of life. So up until that time, God had given them laws and commands to help preserve their way of life as his people. And as they're going into these new countries, these pagan cultures, they became so concerned that the people were going to be influenced by them that they started to appoint these religious leaders to help preserve their way of life. So this started with good intentions. By the time of Jesus, we see that they're, they're not doing such great work. But here, the reason why they started, it wasn't a bad thing. 
They were trying to preserve God's will for their lives, God's commands, in a foreign country. But over time, they began to add to God's laws. They began to get so paranoid that they would make it even more difficult to follow God's commands. Here's an example of something they might have done. Let's say God's command says, do not steal. That's a good command. But they were so afraid of breaking that command that they would say, you know, do not steal. That's good. But why don't we also say, don't associate with anyone who's ever stolen before. You know what? On top of that, let's just say don't associate with anyone who's ever even been accused of stealing before. And just to be safe, let's go ahead and cast those people out of our community. That way there's no hint of stealing in our community at all. Do you see how harmful this is? You start off with the good command. And it is important to recognize that God's commands aren't our good. They weren't given as like this brooding authority to make your life more difficult and say, you should do this because I said you should. God gave these commands because they were good for his people. It was good not to steal. But they took that and they perverted it and they added to it and they made it worse and worse and worse. So by the time Jesus came around, these religious leaders had set themselves up in a place of honor in the community. They were the ones who determined what was right or wrong. They added laws to God's commands and they said what was okay and what wasn't. But that, by that point, they had added so much that it was such a burden for the people. They couldn't keep up anymore. So you can see why Jesus and these religious leaders were in opposition to one another because Jesus came saying, your rules don't matter. God cares about the people not just following these rules. So as we look at the religious leaders and how they came to be, there's, there's really a main point that comes to mind for me. God's commands don't need our help. God's commands don't need our help. How many times have we found ourselves in this position? We know that God has given us a good thing to either do or not do, and we keep adding to it just to make sure that we're following that command, but we're missing the point completely. And again, this is where we want to look outward at someone else. But the challenge today is to look at our own lives and to ask ourselves, in what ways might I be adding to God's commands? In what ways might I be trying to be the hero of my story and taking control of my own life? Now, it's important to recognize that as Jesus was approaching the religious leaders during that time, he wasn't just treating them as like a minor inconvenience, like it's annoying what they're doing, but it's not that big of a deal. No, he came preaching in anger against them. It wasn't like you mean well, but you're getting a few things wrong. He was saying you are actively leading the people of God astray. And if he preached with so much anger against them, I think we should take that part seriously to make sure there is no part of that in our own lives. We see a few examples in scripture. Here's one in John 10 Verse one, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. He's talking about the religious leaders here. He's saying, not only are you getting it wrong, but you're actively robbing the people of God's will for their lives. This comes in the same passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for the sheep. Anyone who is leading people in a different direction, you are robbing them of what God wants for their lives. So we find also in the book of Matthew, in 23, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus calls down seven curses against these religious leaders. It's very serious, his treatment of them. And because of that, we look at their story 
And in humility, as difficult as it might be, we try to put ourselves in their shoes and see if there's any similarities between their lives and ours. And I think it's helpful to recognize that this isn't like a line in the sand where you're on one side of the line acting this way or you're not. I don't think life is always that black and white. I know for me, life is very messy and complex. And there are times where I get it right and times where I don't. There are probably at the same time parts of my life where I'm getting it right and parts of my life where I'm not. So this isn't about making a decision one time to not act in the same mindset of the religious leaders. It's an active, ongoing part of our lives to make sure that we're staying true to the heart of God's plan for our lives. So the challenge today is not just to say, I'm either this or this, but to open up our hearts to God's spirit and ask, in what ways might I need to make some changes? So the way I want to do that today is by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. At whatever campus you were at this morning, the host of your service took you into the Good Samaritan story. They showed us this picture and asked us to find our place in this story. If you've, if you've never even heard this story before, there's a good chance you've probably heard the term Good Samaritan. If you ever see a news headline about someone helping someone else in distress, oftentimes it says Good Samaritan helps someone in need. Maybe you have heard this story before. And as we read it today, I want to challenge us to think about which characters we're identifying with. So we find this story in Luke chapter 10, and the setup to the story is a religious expert in the law, right in the wheelhouse of who we're talking about today. The religious leaders, an expert in the law, someone who knew it better than anyone else, comes to Jesus and asks this question, what must I do to be saved? And the paraphrased answer, Jesus basically says, you must love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So the expert in the religious law, he asks a follow-up question. Well, who is my neighbor? And on the surface, it seems like a good question. But he's asking it so arrogantly. He's not asking because he really wants to know. He's asking because he believes that he's getting it so right that Jesus will affirm him by saying, you're already doing it. You got it. Don't worry about it. But instead, Jesus answers with a story, and it's a powerful one. Let's look at this story together. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. What a powerful response to 
a simple question that was asked. Jesus could have just said it to him, but instead we find this all throughout Jesus's ministry. He tells these powerful stories that change the way we think. They change our perception of who God is. So I think in order to really understand this story and to find ourselves in the story, there's a few key questions that we have to ask. Here's the first one. At the beginning of this whole story, who asked the question? The religious expert in the law. The reason why he asked it matters a lot too. He's trying to justify his own actions. The second question that helps us find it. Who are the main characters in the story? Well, obviously we have the Good Samaritan. That's the title of the story. But we also find, as we read it, the priest and the temple assistant. The other main character we find in this story is the man who was beaten and left for dead. And then the final question we asked, what is Jesus's long-term goal? Why even tell this story in the first place? And I think when we zoom out, we realize that Jesus is telling this story for more than just an answer to this man's question. He's trying to show how God's kingdom is changing. God's will for his people. There is a new way of life coming and Jesus is here to bring it. All these rules and these laws that you followed, that's not it. God has a better plan. So as we find ourselves in this story, I think it's also helpful for us to go through this second question, the main characters. Who are the main characters of this story and what do they represent? So first we have the Good Samaritan. And like we mentioned before, anytime we read a story, it is natural for us to jump into the shoes of the hero. And that is the hero of this story. And it's a very strange choice for a hero by Jesus because Samaritans, you saw it in the scripture verse. It says a despised Samaritan. Now, if we look into their history and who they were, they were exactly the thing the religious leaders were trying to prevent. Samaritans were ones who had intermarried with other cultures. The whole point of the religious leader's existence was to prevent that from happening. So you can imagine that they did not like these people. They were the ones who had become influenced by other cultures. They had married into them. And they were looked down upon by the Jewish people who had kept the rules and the commands. So by making a Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus is saying things are about to change. We also find that the Samaritan is the hero. He's the one who helped the man and nursed him back to health. And as we look at this character, we realize that Jesus is setting himself up as the good Samaritan. He is the one who is here to provide aid to those who are hurting. He is the one here to provide relief to those who are in desperate need. And by making the character a Samaritan, he's saying what you think and what you know is about to change completely. God cares about so much more than these rules and these laws that you've set up to govern the people. So if we don't find ourselves in the character of the good Samaritan, then we move to the temple assistant and the priest. Now these two would have fallen squarely into the role of a religious leader. Jesus doesn't say exactly why they pass by on the other side, but I think context helps us. So if there is a man who is dying on the side of the road, it was very possible they couldn't tell whether he was dead or alive. And they had very strict and specific laws about touching something that was unclean. So most likely they saw this man, they weren't sure whether he was alive or whether he was dead and thought, you know what, just to be safe, why don't we keep going? I don't want to break any of the laws that we've set up. I don't want to even be accused of breaking a law, of touching something unclean. So I'm going, to, I'm going to keep walking. 
Now remember, the person who asked this question was an expert in the religious law, and he was very sure of himself and his own righteousness. And Jesus is saying, if your law says to pass by a dying man without helping him, something is wrong with your law. It is flawed and it is broken. Objectively, we can look at this story and say the Good Samaritan got it right. He stopped and helped a man in need. And don't hear me wrong, that is not a bad thing. I think as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should be the first ones to show up when people are in distress. We should be showing the love of Jesus by our actions and not just by our words. We should be doing things like that. But I don't think this is a story about helping people. I think Jesus has so much more to say. And he's telling this man, this expert in the law, that your law is not good enough. That's what the temple assistant and the priest represent. But I still don't think he's telling the man to find himself in those characters in the story. And so that takes us to the last one here. The helpless man. Just for a moment, I want you to experience this story through the eyes of the helpless man. You have been beaten within an inch of your life. You are left for dead on the side of a deserted road. There is absolutely nothing you can do to improve your situation. You are desperately in need of a savior. Do you see where I'm going with this? Jesus is telling this religious expert in the law, not only are your laws and your righteousness a joke, but spiritually, you are the equivalent of a man who is beaten and left for dead on the side of the road and cannot help himself. If ever there was a character for us to identify with in a story, this is the one. We find ourselves in the same place as that man. Jesus' long-term goal here is to come and proclaim a new and different way. He's saying that trying to do things on our own is not going to be good enough. Trying to follow these laws and these commands are not going to be good enough. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what he did for us. And when we recognize that, there is power and there is freedom. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, We find some of Jesus' most powerful teachings. We call this the Beatitudes. In the very first one, he says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Maybe you've heard it said this way before. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. In life, we have all these different ways of measuring our status. Maybe it's wealth, Maybe it's success, achievement, influence. We can climb the ladder and be better off than someone else. We can work really hard to earn our status. But spiritually, in God's economics, we are all in poverty. There's not a single one of us who has done enough to earn a place closer to God's love for us. When God says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who recognize this who recognize their own depravity, their own humanity, their need for a savior. The religious leaders, their biggest mistake, they were the heroes of their own story. They didn't think they needed anything else. They thought their righteousness 
could save them. The reason why they fought against Jesus so hard, the reason why they were in opposition to each other so much is because Jesus was saying, your laws and your commands are hurting the people. It's not what God is after. He's after something so much more than that. Here's the main point we land on today. God cares more about our hearts than our actions. Let me explain this carefully because actions absolutely matter. This is an excuse to just go do and whatever we want, whatever we want. What matters is the order, the priority. When our hearts are in the right place, our actions naturally follow. But when we skip that step, we're missing it completely. Back to the example that I gave earlier of do not steal. The religious leaders thought they had to add to God's commands in order to follow that, this good thing that God had set in front of them. What if instead we spent our time growing closer to the heart of God, internalizing his love for us and the reason behind these commands, and out of that, we don't steal, but not because we've set ourselves up to try and achieve this goal of following God's commands. When our hearts are in alignment with his heart, Actions just follow naturally. But the only way that we can arrive at that place, to live in a way where our actions are flowing out of our heart for God, is when we recognize that spiritually, we are the equivalent of this man who is beaten and left for dead. There is nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves, to earn God's love for us. We have to surrender to him to give him full control of our lives. And when we do that, when we recognize that, that we are poor in spirit, there is freedom and power in God's kingdom that you cannot imagine because he doesn't leave us on the side of the road. He doesn't pass us by. He takes us and he nurses us back to health. And he says, you are a child of mine who has value and worth in my kingdom. Go and live in that freedom and that power. The religious leaders could never grasp that concept. So I think the challenge for us is to look at our own lives and ask, are there any parts that I'm holding on to? In what areas do I need to let go of control? In what areas am I trying to be the hero of my own story? Earlier, we had this picture where we experience this story. And I think pictures are such a powerful way for us to experience stories in new ways. And I wanna go back to it again today. And this time, I want us to allow God to speak to us and find our place in this story. Would you stand with me now as I pray for us and we sing again? God, for each one of my friends here today, for myself, for my own heart, I ask that you would show us ways in which we might be acting like these religious leaders. Show us what it means to be fully surrendered to you. Show us the power that comes from surrendering our hearts to you. As we find ourselves in this story, God, speak to us in a powerful way. We ask all of this in your son's name. Thanks for listening to Hope's Weekend Message. Visit hopefellowship.net and further connect with us by downloading the Hope app 
from the App Store or Google Play. Have a great day.